Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida, and a topic we spent a good deal of time, I believe it was last summer, summer of 2021. Correct me if I'm wrong about that, Craig, discussing that the, the chickens have finally come home to roost here and, and pretty much the worst fears of everyone in the environmental uh, world have come true. When the in the waning days of the Trump administration, the EPA handed over to Florida the uh, federal wetlands permitting program, which which uh, one uh, developer told me years ago that that's their holy grail. That was what they wanted because they figured the Department of Environmental Protection would issue those permits so much faster than the Corps of Engineers mm-hmm. does. And so uh, what we have learned now is, you know, everybody that was predicting that would be a disaster. Turns out they were right. And not for the reason that they thought it's because the DEP, as it turns out, is using a definition of wetlands that is so much more restrictive than what they're supposed to use. And so they're not covering a lot of wetlands they're supposed to cover. And the EPA has noticed the EPA under the Biden administration has mm-hmm. said, wait a minute, you can't do that. You have to be using the current definition, which is so much broader. And so now the EPA has started objecting to individual DEP wetlands permits and the whole thing is just it's it's looking like a train wreck yeah the dep is a a state body florida yeah Uh, obviously the uh under the governor yeah uh, uh, the complication comes with the epa being a federal body and the Mm -hmm. outgoing administration changed the regulations to really narrowly restrict what a wetland was to eliminate a lot of swamps marshes bogs again correct me if i'm wrong six million acres in florida got basically lost protection but then last august an appeals court judge said no that's not correct that's fatally flawed and you have to go back to a different definition of wetlands that provides coverage for a lot more wetlands well Mm -hmm. the state just ignored that federal court ruling and they've continued issuing permits and the dep has now issued 10 letters to the state saying in nine of them, they say we object to these specific projects. And the EPA one of them, has issued the, the, the EPA, letters. Yeah, yeah, the EPA has issued these letters to the DEP saying we object to these specific projects. In one letter, they say this is a big problem and you got to fix it. So, and it doesn't appear that the state is interested in the least little bit under Governor Ron DeSantis, self-proclaimed environmentalist, in no, changing and, its course. No, and so that's why I wrote this column, basically addressing the governor, saying. This is, as you would put it, a Charlie Foxtrot mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the, the military term for cluster. Yeah. Um, and, and you need to fix it. And I proposed a solution for him if he wants to take it. So we'll see if he does. Any reason to think that he will? Uh, again, no. he's, he's Trump's uh, mini-me. I'm sure the regulators, uh, the developers, certainly in the state, like the more narrow definition of a wetland well, because it, it allows them to to have even a freer hand than they used to. So what, what's any reason to believe that Florida is going to abide by the the new federal definition, which is actually the old pre-Trump federal definition the, of wetland? The, um, it's going to hurt the developers, though, because every time the EPA objects to a permit, it hangs up the permit. So everybody is waiting for these permits and they think, oh, well, the DEP is going to issue them fast. Well, guess what? The EPA is standing in the way now. And so um, if, if those developers want their permits, I see, then the solution is either for the DEP to change and start using the correct definition of wetland or for the state to hand the, the permitting program back to 
the EPA and the Corps of Engineers. Yeah. So you can read all about that at the Florida Phoenix, FloridaPhoenix.com. Craig's latest story, and he's followed this very closely throughout and uh, a, a train wreck you could see coming from uh, a, a long ways away. Yeah. I want to welcome our newest sponsor to the podcast, and that is the James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art in St. Petersburg. And the James recently opened its latest temporary exhibition, Away From Home, American Indian Boarding School Stories. This will be on view through March 16th, and this tells through photographs and ephemera and artifacts and personal stories the horrific era of the Indian boarding schools in America where Native American children across the country were ripped from their families, taken away from their parents, and shipped to schools largely run by religious organizations to be assimilated to the white culture. Their hair was cut, their clothes were changed, their names were changed, they were forbidden from speaking their native languages. It was an attempt, if not at straight out genocide, at least cultural genocide. And it was assimilation. Yeah. nearly effective. You recently went to the James for your first time. I did. What a, what a beautiful collection it is. I mean, the, the paintings and everything, the sculptures are just quite impressive. And uh, and the folks that were all very knowledgeable and very friendly, too. So I, I, I definitely enjoyed my visit. Yeah. Fantastic museum right in the, the museum district of St. Pete near uh, the Museum of Fine Arts, St. Petersburg, near the Dali. All of those are walkable, a, a fantastic building. The permanent collection is that of Tom James, the, the former Raymond James CEO and longtime chairman of the board. That, that this is this is one of those things where someone who had a real passion for something developed a huge collection of their own and then decided to put it into a museum sort of like the topic we're about to talk about yes (laughs) absolutely foreshadowing our guest this week matthew frick who is the curator at the saint augustine pirate and treasure museum that is also a personal collection we will tease whose collection it belongs to but obviously craig florida uh where you live where i live all throughout the state pirates have, have a great folklore here in the Tampa Bay area, you've got Treasure Island over on the beaches. You've got Tampa celebrating Gasparilla every year, this big party mm-hmm. for for a pirate. And and uh, you and I, when I when we visited uh, the Palace Saloon, they right. had a pirate standing outside the door. Yep, uh, here on Amelia just- Island. Yeah, the, the Fernandina Beach Pirates, the high school, the whole thing. So there's uh, incredible pirate history around Florida. And that's what we're going to talk to Matthew Frick from the St. Augustine Pirate and Treasure Museum all about. Are we sure are. <laughs> <laughs> How did St. Augustine wind up being the place for a pirate museum? For the actual pirate museum, it started when um, the owner of the Pirate Soul Museum, Pat Croce down in Key West, uh, he was invited to come and speak about pirates here in St. Augustine. When he was up here talking about them, uh, then he found a, a great location for them right across from the Castillo de San Marcos, uh, the old, the oldest masonry fort in uh, the continental United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he figured that this is the perfect place because uh, that fort, in large part, the uh, continued existence of this town uh, was because pirates kept attacking. So in... <laughs> uh, when the town was founded in 1565, it was Spanish. In 1586, the town was only 21 years old, but England was at war with Spain. So they sent one of their greatest naval heroes who was uh, 
known as Queen Elizabeth's own pirate, uh, Sir Francis Drake. And Drake came uh, with this, the sole intention of destroying all of it. Uh, so he came here, spent eight days burning St. Augustine. Wow. Uh, even every house, church, school, the wooden forts they had out here, uh, even burned the fruit trees. Again, it was only 21 years old, you know, but the people, luckily enough, were hiding. Um, you know, there were some pot shots at the beginning, but when you're facing uh, about 400 people here in St. Augustine uh, versus 2,000 pirates on 23 ships that Drake brought, um, they ran for the woods and they hid. So they and were blinded. hiding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, they came out and they rebuilt the whole town, rebuilt it all, rebuilt the uh, wooden forts. No less than nine of them have been uh, burned down over the years. It was in uh, 1668 when an English pirate by the name of uh, Robert Searles, also known as uh, John Davis. Uh, if you read some old texts uh, written by John Esquiline called the Buccaneers of America, he refers to him as John Davis. But he showed up and he had four ships, his own eight-gun sloop, the Cagway, and another pirate consort. But they came with two Spanish ships that they captured off of Cuba just before coming to uh, St. Augustine. The pirate ships stayed off the coast uh, down to the south a little bit. The two Spanish ships came into Matanzas Bay here uh, at midnight. Uh, the people in the fort, uh, the wooden fort, didn't like sound the alarm because they knew those ships. When at one o'clock it was a, in the morning, it was a Trojan horse situation, basically. Pretty much, exactly <laughs> right. There was pirates on board, and at one o'clock in the morning, the pirates started to come ashore, and they knew that that was not how business was conducted at one o'clock in the morning. So, uh, you know, normally you just wait until the next morning to you know go out and then you know settle, do your business, let everybody sleep. But uh, they sounded the alarm, and everybody that could come into uh, the wooden fort for protection. You know, everybody that could wake up actually came in. Those that didn't wake up or didn't make it in time for Searle's pirates, they captured everyone else. Um, anyone that was not a pure Spanish blood, they uh, they killed. Um, wow. The rest of them, they held for ransom. And they held the uh, people for ransom. And then when for six days, they fought with the people in, in the wooden fort of St. Augustine. And so during this time when Searles was happy that there was no more money here in St. Augustine, because uh, after Drake's raid and some others, they had moved all their money into coffers inside the wooden forts. Um, so the, the ransoming was necessary for Searles to get all the money from the town. And he was a straight on pirate, whereas Drake was a privateer who was uh, sent by the queen, you know, to fight her country's enemy, uh, in this case, Spain. Searles was nothing more than a pirate. So he went, came and wanted to get money. And so after six days, he had ransomed off everyone else, gotten all of his money, and he left. And so he left and joined another buccaneer that many of us are familiar with by the name of Henry Morgan, Captain Morgan. He oh, yeah. was uh, busy doing that raiding Panama. <laughs> Uh, when word got back to Queen Mariana of Spain, who was at this point sick and tired of English pirates attacking, that she authorized them to build the Castillo de San Marcos. The people had wanted to build some kind of stone fort for years, but they had not been given the uh, authorization or you know the money uh, along with that to actually build it. 
There was no stone quarries here in St. Augustine, still not really. Uh, so what they used was what the local population used was coquina uh, in Spanish, meaning little shells. Uh-huh. Um, and so they were able to go to the, the coquina uh, quarries, if you will, on Anastasia Island, um, just off here. And they could use that to build the fort. It would take about three months for a block to really cure. And so it took them 23 years to complete the fort. But ever since then, and even during the construction of it, pirates avoided St. Augustine. But, you know, this is the oldest city in the nation. It's actually the longest continuously occupied European settlement in North America. Right. All because the Castillo de San Marcos was built. And that fort was built because pirates kept attacking. So there is a no kidding pirate history here in St. Augustine. We even do reenactments of uh, Searle's raid um, every year. Um, wow. To, to uh, re, you know, relive, I guess, that, mm-hmm. that bit. And you can find pieces of uh, Drake's and Searle's raid when you're actually building something here in St. Augustine mm-hmm. or they're doing any uh, kind of uh, refurbishment. When they built this museum in uh, 2010, and they were digging, there's always an archaeologist on site whenever mm-hmm. they dig. Well, for one, because there's so many dead bodies that are buried around. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we actually have some artifacts inside from Drake's raid, because when Drake raided and burned the entire place, if you dig three feet down into St. Augustine, you hit an area about uh, uh, two to four inches uh, wide called the burn zone. And yeah. you'll find artifacts from that time period, from, oh boy. Uh, from the raid, yeah. That's incredible. What era are we talking about? What was sort of the era of piracy for Florida? The main time period would be uh, generally what's considered the golden age of piracy, mm-hmm. uh, which is between 1680 and 1730. And that's where St. Augustine plays a big part in the fact that it sort of guided where Pirates would not go um, in St. Augustine anyways, uh, because the Spanish had built it. When Drake came, this was part of the Elizabethan sea dogs portion of it. And if you think in terms of Shakespeare, uh, when Shakespeare started writing, that was all during the same time period. So Elizabeth I, uh, you had pirates like John Hawkins, who was actually Sir Francis Drake's cousin. And they raided the Spanish um, you know, settlements in uh, in Jamaica and out and throughout the Caribbean during the mid to mid 1500s to early 1600s. Um, so that was like the first era. And that's really the era that here in North Florida and in St. Augustine, that's really where we got were in touch with uh, the pirates. But because the fort was here, Many pirates just ignore, you know, went around it. So when they were attacking sure. uh, shipping in North Carolina or South Carolina or even uh, the Caribbean, they avoided uh, St. Augustine. Pirates uh, still existed. One in particular was uh, a man named uh, Black Caesar, who was an escaped slave. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And he had his own uh, pirate fleet down in the Keys. When, uh, so again, far from St. Augustine, but still in Florida, during the time of Blackbeard, uh, so Blackbeard was really a, he was a pirate captain uh, for about two years, 
uh, from about 1715 or 1716 to 1718 before he was killed. He was a privateer for England before that. When he was a uh, pirate under uh, Benjamin Hornigold and later as his own captain, again here in the first quarter century of the of the 17th, uh, 1700s, he was there was a three month period where he was missing essentially into huh. the historic to the historical record yeah. and uh, to the best guess of historians he was actually in the gulf of mexico not necessarily mate rating uh, say tampa you know or anything <laughs> on the west yeah. coast of florida he was more uh, on the the mexico central america side Mm. Um, because pirates, uh, especially at the beginning of the golden age of piracy in the mid 1650s, were heavy into raiding Spanish holdings, but they were on more on the Pacific side of mm. Central and South America. Um, and then they come around and then make their own safe haven, if you will, in places like Port Royal uh, in Jamaica. If they weren't setting foot in Florida, they were here. Uh, they were, you know, all around Florida. And then, you know, they wanted to maintain a safe place because Florida, again, was a Spanish colony. And so for during the golden age of piracy, many of them looked for other places that they could uh, could go to. So until they established the Pirate Republic in Nassau and the Bahamas, then Port Royal was first it. Uh, you had early buccaneers like Henry Morgan um, that were there in Jamaica. Uh, again, Eng- an English settlement. They're celebrating Gasparilla this weekend in Tampa. Was there ever really a pirate named Jose Gaspar? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's a party for a non the memory of a non existent guy. Okay, <laughs> it, it is. It's uh, um, and, and that that's a great story in itself. There was a um, an old guy that claimed to be Gasparilla. Um, and, and I don't know his name too much because, uh, you know, I'm more focused on You're actual more pirates. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so I know that uh, um, he claimed to have been Gasparilla, but he also claimed to be other things, you know, and stuff. So when you look <laughs> at him, he was just a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. And so people latched onto it. And none of us disparage Gasparilla. We might you know, make a note that there was no actual Jose Gaspar um, <laughs> on it. There were pirates in the Gulf of Mexico. We will give you that. But, you know, maybe not what you're thinking. And so if this guy created his own Jose Gaspar persona, now you've got people dressing like, you know, Hollywood uh, versions of pirates right. uh, and just having a great old time. In our opinion, it's keeping the idea of pirates alive. So, you know, we're happy with that. You mentioned Hollywood pirates and obviously Pirates of the Caribbean was such a popular cultural phenomenon. And and most people do associate pirates with the Caribbean, as you mentioned, the Bahamas, the Keys, Jamaica. But St. Augustine is obviously nowhere near the Caribbean. Where I live in Fernandina Beach, there's a pirate history. The high school and middle school teams are both called the the Pirates. Uh, You mentioned North Carolina, South Carolina, the Gulf. How widely did pirates apply their trade during this golden period throughout the uh, Americas and the Atlantic and the, the Caribbean and Gulf? All up and down the East Coast. And I will, you know, say that especially um, at the English colonies, many of the people that came over 
I will say, you know, New York, uh, Boston, Newport, Rhode Island, North Carolina, Virginia, those were the older ones. Uh, the farther north you went, the older it was. Uh, but these are the places where the hotbeds of pirates, for instance, uh, the pirate Thomas too. He was from Rhode Island and he would went on what was called the pirate round, going around Africa and attacking Indian, uh, not Native American, we're talking mm-hmm. India. Um, there are pilgrim ships that would go from India to uh, to Mecca for uh, the Hajj, because uh, mm-hmm. India at the time was a Muslim country. And mm-hmm. so when the ships came back, they also did trade during this time. The pirates found out about it. They went and raided those ships. When uh, people like Thomas II came back, they would go right back to where they're from because they were welcomed, because the people in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, in his case, or people in New York, they were, the governments were corrupt enough that they would turn a blind eye or take a bribe uh, to allow these pirates to come and sell their goods or offload them Still or are. spend the money because, I mean, it was good for the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they allowed them to continue to operate. So that's why piracy continued to flourish for so long. Yeah. So it was a global enterprise. This was not something that we think of Pirates of the Caribbean and Johnny Depp and swashbuckling and swinging from you know mass and that, but this was applied right. all over the world. Exactly. Uh, but- it was, there was French pirates, there were Dutch pirates, English pirates, most of them that we know about in the golden age of pirates, piracy, they uh, came from the British Isles. Um, So, you know, that's why many of the things that we, you know, know of pirates, or we think we know of pirates, you know, really, they're all English, uh, for the most part, Uh, many of them Blackbeard and stuff, they did come from the West country of England. um, And so they were a hotbed, you know, that way. And, And in particular, there was the real big spread of it happened um, at the end of Queen Anne's War, which was the War of Spanish Succession, uh, known as Queen Anne's War uh, on this side of the pond. Um, When the maritime portion ended in 1713, there was about 5,000 English privateers in the uh, Caribbean alone. And uh, when it ended, you no longer had any enemies to fight because a privateer was someone who was given permission, a letter of mark, Mm -hmm. to attack the country's enemies during times of war there's no war, there's no enemies. So one to 2000 of them decided to become pirates. And that's really when we started to see people like Blackbeard, who was a privateer, go into business for himself. You mentioned Thomas too. Don't you guys have one of his treasure chests? Yes, we do. Oh boy. Yes, we have the uh, only surviving pirate treasure chest uh, in the world. And that belonged to Thomas too. It's the only one that actually has provenance to a pirate. Now there are might be other chests that have been recovered. Uh, I don't know the status of them um, because Barry Clifford, who's found the Witta um, up near Cape Cod, that was a ship that uh, went down for, uh, and it actually there, so there might be something there, but the Thomas II chest that we have, uh, I've been able to, you know, track down the provenance to that uh, all the way from when we had it back to uh, just about when uh, Thomas too had it. You know, that's, again, the only one that we know uh, that belonged to a specific pirate. Now, to find that in the museum, do you have to dig where X marks the spot, or is it, or is it, uh, is it on a better oh, display? to find it? <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's prominently displayed, but okay. when you do the uh, 
interactive book of pirates in our museum. Uh, it will show you a map and an and X right where the uh. treasure chest is. So <laughs> in a sense, yes, you do. As always, we want to thank Visit Sarasota for bringing you welcome to Florida. Visit Sarasota.com. Check them out online. I am recording today's podcast in New York City. I'm coming back to Florida in a couple of days, but I met a woman up here who actually is moving to Sarasota. You talk about a small world. She's a, a longtime New Yorker who is moving to Sarasota. I said, oh, I, not that I needed to know this, but I thought for the podcast, it would be interesting to, to get her story. And she says, obviously it's the weather. Obviously it's the beaches. Her favorite beach is Lido Key there in Sarasota. But you know she loves the walkability of downtown. As I'm recording this podcast, high temperatures here in New York in the 20s. She loves living an outdoor lifestyle, walking to shopping, walking to dining, walking on the beach. And she chose Sarasota to relocate to and is so excited about moving down to the area. Well, if you're interested in that outdoor lifestyle, whether it's for a long weekend, whether that's for a family vacation or whether it's for a lifetime, check out visitsarasota.com. Download the Visit Sarasota app. Find your perfect beach. Maybe it's Lido Key, maybe it's Siesta Key, but on the Sarasota app, you can figure out what your ideal Sarasota beach is. And again, thank you, Visit Sarasota, for sponsoring the podcast. Let's circle back to Black Caesar. Whereabouts was his, his, uh, I guess, lair, I guess is the right word, in the Keys? The exact location, not so uh, uh, sure, uh, Mm -hmm. because he did have enough ships all around. Um, that it most likely was, you know, Key West, but it uh, could have been north of that, say, Alamorada, where they were actually located. You know, interesting thing about Black Caesar. He had become so uh, famous and well-known down there that he was also uh, recruited. You know, think of a good uh, you know, college football player. You know, he's like, he's known, so now he's going to get recruited. Uh, well, he was actually with Blackbeard. When Blackbeard died, he was serving with Blackbeard. So on his ship, when Blackbeard was uh, about to get into his final battle with the Royal Navy uh, that was sent down by the uh, Governor Spotswood of Virginia down North Carolina, because the uh, Governor Spotswood did not like the North Carolinian governor, um, Charles Eden. So he was like, well, Charles Eden is giving this guy refuge. We need to kill him. So he sent people essentially into uh, you know, territory that he was not allowed to do it. But oh boy. Uh, as as history tells it, uh, Robert Maynard went down. He and some of his other Navy people, along with some Royal Marines, had taken over two uh, merchant uh, sloops, and then they went down into Ogrecoke. Now, Ogrecoke now is sealed off, but at the time it was, you know, an inlet, uh, so you could get into it. It's just you know, as the hundreds of years have passed and, uh, you know, as the oceans go and stuff, and they, uh, you know, kind of shored up with another barrier island, you know, that just makes Ocracoke now, you know, it's uh, inaccessible. But they were able to go in. And Robert Maynard, what he did with his, one of his ships was that they only had about maybe 15, 20 people on deck when they came up to Blackbeard's ship. Uh, and so Blackbeard's ship sloop the Revenge at the time. He had seen this and said, we can easily take these people, so let's board them. Uh, yeah. So they boarded them, 
And when they did, Maynard gave the order and all of the rest of his troops came out from down below deck. And that's when the fighting ensued. Well, before he had gone over, Black Caesar was left on board Blackbeard's sloop with the uh, captive uh, merchant captains from the ship that he had taken. And so he had them down below, given the orders that if things were going sideways uh, for Blackbeard, then he was to light off the gunpowder, you know, essentially explode the ship because it's right next to it and then destroy, you know, kill all, all of them. Yeah. Um, But before he was able to uh, carry that bit out, the captured uh, merchant captains broke free and subdued him. And so that kept him from following his final orders of uh, destroying the entire ship. And then that would include destroying the ship they were next to, which uh, Blackbeard and the Royal Navy were fighting. So, well, the reason I ask about the location there, there is a place down there called Caesar's Rock that had traditionally that's supposed to be where his harem, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, was was set up. And it's near. And, and, yeah. and most and most likely, why not? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, why not name if uh, the best place that you can come <laughs> up with? Because you're not going to know exactly, you know, specific for. Uh, right where something is a lot of times a lot of times with current history is you live in the realm between probable and plausible um so you might not have the exact dates or locations you might not be lucky enough to have somebody in madagascar uh running saint mary's island which was a pirate trading outpost for the red sea pirates keeping a log of this ship came in with this captain, this many people, and this mm-hmm. is what we traded for, and then hand that over to the, uh, you know, the Admiralty um, afterwards. You don't have that luxury, so we've got to do the best that we can with what we do have. But it is, you know, highly probable that, you know, that's one of the places where he did have uh, his group of people, his harem, mm-hmm. if you will. <laughs> because places like that are named uh, for pirates, even up in uh Hampton Roads, Virginia, um, they do have a place called Blackbeard Point where Blackbeard's head was put on a pike when they got to Virginia um, after he was killed. So, you know, there are places around and then you can find them. And then so uh, it's it's fun nonetheless. You know, it's like whether it's the exact location where Caesar stepped foot, you know, it's uh, it's close enough and you get the pirate history, you know, there because, you know, he was down there. It's fun to to meet history where it was, whether you know that somebody's you're stepping in their exact footsteps, I don't know. So. What about female pirates? To, to what extent did females participate in this trade? We don't know a lot about them because for, you know, the maritime culture, even for a long time after, after this, uh, women on board were bad luck in the seafaring days, uh, uh, the age of sail. But there are two specific women that we do know about in the golden age of piracy and that's Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Uh, they have, you know, interesting stories in their own right. Anne Bonny was uh, the illegitimate daughter of uh, a man named Robert McCormack. When he took his uh, daughter after the wife found out that she was actually the daughter of the maid, he his uh, then 16-year-old daughter to uh, what's now North Carolina. He was a lawyer, went to I try his trade at being a lawyer in North Carolina, but it wasn't very successful as well. Uh, Anne fell in love with a man named James Bonney. Uh, James Bonney was a you know shady mariner. They ended up eloping and then moving to the Bahamas. And that's where she met Jack Rackham, 
who was a notorious pirate in his own right, but he was he was more of a small time pirate attacking fishing boats and some other things um, around the Bahamas, but adventurous enough and, and debonair enough that uh, Anne wanted to elope. Now, at this time, though, Woods Rogers, who was now the governor of the Bahamas, who was sent to from England to uh, get rid of the pirates in the whole Boy. area, and in particular in Nassau uh, in the Bahamas, he found out about it. And so to have her marriage uh, to James Bonney erased, then and for her to be able to marry uh, Jack Rackham, she needed permission from the governor. The governor said that uh, you know if you do this, then I will take you and Jack both into the uh, public square and then I'll have Jack whip you. Uh, so they had to go oh off on their own. So they ended up going off to Jamaica uh, a little bit. But uh, before their last cruise, they actually hired on a sailor by the name of Mark Reed. And Mark Reed was actually Mary Reed. Mary oh Reed had grown up dressing in men's clothing as a child because her mother uh, had dressed her in, in boys' clothing. And that's because this child was from somebody else besides her husband who had gone away on a ship, merchant ship, and then left. But while uh, her son that she did have at the time, the mother-in-law was sending money to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to give to the, uh, her daughter-in-law and her mm-hmm. grandson. Well, she knew that if her mother-in-law knew that the son who had actually passed or just died of a you know, disease, whatever it was, if she would dress Mary named Mark as a boy so that that way the mother-in-law was no no more the, keep the checks coming she, yeah keep the checks coming exactly mm-hmm. so uh and she and mary reed actually uh served in the continental army um against france wow. um mm-hmm. you know on the uh the mainland and <laughs> when she was down there she signed up and both of those women were on board jack rackham's uh sloop the uh, William, when they were captured off Jamaica in October of 1720 by a privateer. So those are the two main women that we know about. And the reason that we know anything really about them uh, before they became pirates was uh, because of a book written by Captain Charles Johnson in 1724 called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. And oh, that book is title. still used by yeah. historians today. Yeah, long title. But very descriptive. He made, <laughs> he made uh, um, he did several books. There's there was a uh, a theory in 1936, I think, that came out that said that uh, it wasn't actually Captain Charles Johnson. That was just a pseudonym for Daniel Defoe, who wrote uh-huh. Robinson Crusoe and some others. Right. Um, that has since been disproven, um, mm-hmm. if you will, or a lot of uncertainty shed upon that theory, mm-hmm. uh, but you will still find that book published under the name Daniel Defoe. It's hit or miss um, on who actually Captain Charles Johnson was. There are some other theories of who he was, but there is no doubt that the guy knew pirates and that he talked to them because in the first and second editions in particular of that general history, those facts have been proven out by their documents. So, uh, wow. and that's why what makes it reliable. But you do have to have an eye for the fact that some of it's not exactly true, but mm-hmm. almost all of it is. Fascinating. This is a little off the topic, but how, what leads a historian to get involved in tracking down information on pirates? How did you get? How did you get into this field? I liked it since I was a kid. 
I, since I was a kid, I would, I would grab anything about pirates and learn about them. I joined the Navy, sailed ships for 20 years. Oh, boy. Uh, so for me, you know. With or without an eye patch. <laughs> yeah, with, with, without, yeah. Thank, thank goodness without, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, if I needed it, then I might not have been in the Navy. It's just, it's a, a love of it, you know, of, of wanting to do it and then learn about it. Some of the historians that I I know that are working on different projects. It's the same reason they, you know, you latch onto something and you uh, start digging deeper. You inquisitive mind. I wrote a book about Thomas too, after I started working here uh, and learned about the treasure chest and I wanted to know more about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I went to Boston uh, and Boston university archives and was able to get some information and that led from one thing to another. And I spent three and a half years investigating the true story of Thomas too. You just, you start digging on one thing, then you see a name mentioned in some other document, then you start connecting dots and then you dig deeper. And so it takes a little bit longer. So, you know, for me, it's a bit, uh, you know, of a in investigation um, mystery type uh, mm-hmm. stuff. And, and if you look at history like that and, you know, aren't content with just having it fed to you, you know, you look back at what other historians have cited, and then you go back to that, try to get as many of the original documents as you possibly can. So I'm not, you know, ashamed to say that I piggyback on other research that's done oh, sure. by yeah. other people to, to dig around and then find more stuff. But that's, you know, one of the things that we try to do with any of the um, guides that are here uh, at the St. Augustine uh, Pirate and Treasure Museum is they really present the truth. The truth mm-hmm. is as close as any of us can get. And so we'll have discussions on our own also about some different things that might be, well, that's really just a myth because I saw this or I read that mm-hmm. and stuff and we'll help each other out. We all do our own research as well and then just compare notes. You know, that's just because we want to get it right so that people uh, that come and visit you know, have the best knowledge that we can right. impart. And most of the uh, impetus for a lot of our uh, investigation and looking into pirates is because of questions that visitors have. Yeah. If, if they ask a question and we can't answer it, then I guarantee as soon as those tours are over, you know, maybe the next day we go and re- we research it. So we do look. So it's an ongoing thing um, really for us to try to, you know, present the uh, the most accurate knowledge about pirates in the golden age of piracy as we can. And I will say, I mean, there are uh, one of the other pirate tour guides is well more versed in the St. Augustine history than I am. And I'm learning from him uh, a lot of the stuff there, but he was also born and raised here. So, uh, you know, he's got a little... Uh, He's got a head start. Head start. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, that that explains your interest in piracy, but you don't own the objects, the cannonballs, the the treasures, the the stuff that people see when they go into the museum. And if I'm to understand correctly, Pat Croce owns that stuff. It's his collection. People may recognize that name. At least I did as the the flamboyant owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. How did Pat Croce get interested in? pirate stuff enough to compile a personal collection worthy of turning into a museum same as any of us uh as a kid yeah you know, he, okay he, he had uh and the uh story you know that um you know he had told was that watching the movie captain blood with his father uh, with with Errol Flynn right and Olivia <laughs> de Havilland watching that movie that really got him into 
liking pirates. And so he, when he was able to start buying artifacts for it, that's when he started. And so it took him four decades to compile, you know, the over 98% of the artifacts that, that we have in the museum. We have some things on loan, but the vast majority are things that he did collect. And when did, when did you open in, in St. Augustine? You moved from, from Key West, correct? Right. Uh, uh, we opened in St. Augustine on December 8th, 2010. The folks who come to visit, what would you say is the biggest misconception people have that you guys kind of try to correct for them about pirates? I, I, I would say the biggest misconception is that for a lot of people is that, wait, they actually were real. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. as simple as that, you know, people have heard of Blackbeard, but even some might even not even know if he's exactly true, uh, if he was a real person. But then when they read a lot, they see, and then they uh, see how uh, widespread kind of what we talked about at the beginning, that it wasn't just, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, it wasn't just yeah. Tortuga. Uh, Tortuga was one, but that was also a different uh, period of time. That was the period of Henry Morgan. So some people are surprised by that. There actually is a Captain Morgan. Yeah, it's not just a rum. They they get to learn that, wow, they really were widespread. uh, And especially when they're doing one of our guided tours, uh, they get to hear even more some of these anecdotes and then other stories that are just fascinating. You know, where where did uh, the phrase dead men tell no tales come from? You know, some other things like that. You get to learn why do we all think pirates talk exactly the way Robert Newton did in uh, Disney's 1950 <laughs> Treasure Island. You know, it's like, well, because you've all seen that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, or been on the ride or both. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Well, there are obviously still pirates in the world. The Tom Hanks movie, Captain Phillips, talks about piracy in Somalia. Correct. And you'll hear about this every once in a while. But let's focus in on the area of Florida and the Caribbean and the Southeast that we've been talking about. When and why did that era of piracy fade away? It faded away primarily because the English took it upon themselves to uh, stop it. And it came with uh, Woods Rogers uh, being appointed the governor of of the Bahamas. Uh, So he went down and his job was to eradicate piracy because uh, the pirates were big on uh, avoiding the or helping uh, other colonies, uh, other English colonies uh, in America to circumvent the uh, uh, navigation acts that required taxes of things that were coming. So even from an English-owned island or other colony, the goods had to go to England to be taxed and then sent to America. Whereas the pirates would take that stuff straight to the colonies in America. And so it allowed the local governments to accept them in and then that continued piracy that way. So cut out the middleman. Once you started appointing people to different governorships, whether it was uh, Lord Bellamont, uh, who was the governor of New York, New Hampshire, and the Massachusetts Bay Colony to uh, disrupt um, Governor Fletcher of New York uh, to uh, oust him, who was very friendly to pirates. You started to see other people getting appointed that just didn't like piracy. And so if you cut off the outlet for them to sell their goods or to amass their wealth, 
you're also cutting them off from their homes. Because remember, many of these people all came from, if not from the British Isles themselves, then from the American colonies. Uh, so a lot of these people live there. Uh, if you have governors uh, and you know local uh, authorities that would not kowtow to what the pirates wanted, then you've cut off their outlet. And so then the business becomes a lot less lucrative. Plus, you got to deal with navies and privateers and everybody else coming after you. Um, So uh, once you decided to become a pirate during this time, you usually only lived about two to five years. Oh, my. Uh, So it really did start to uh, make people think otherwise. And they're like, okay, yeah, it's not quite as good as we thought. So let's not do it anymore. And then so uh, (laughs) many of the pirates, so it's not that thousands of pirates that were out there were all captured and hanged. A lot of them at the end just quit. They would take pardons from uh, the King of England, uh, who would just offer a pardon for this period of time. And uh, for the most part, people honored those pardons. They were like, okay, we're not pirates anymore. Yeah. Before we, before we leave this topic, I I just want to ask, wasn't it also part of it that the, the Spanish fleets were no longer carrying big, loads through that area too did that help to end it big loads of gold and jewels and so forth well they had uh not as much um because i mean i guess you know the uh spanish fleets you know would still be carrying what they could but they started to lose holdings uh one instance okay and this was in 1784 spain owned louisiana and so the whole louisiana territory as we know it right uh from history but uh, when the El Cazador, which was bringing silver uh, minted in in South and Central America uh, to fund the running of Louisiana. So that ship went down and all of a sudden there was no money that was supposed to go to fund uh, Spain's running of Louisiana. So uh, they ended up ceding Louisiana to France because they weren't going to send them any more money. They said, look, we, we can't afford to. We're fighting wars all over the place. We're still trying to expand. We need all the money that we can. That's why we had the colonies to make these coins and then send these jewels and silver and gold back to Spain so that we could fund all these other wars. But, okay, we're not going to send it to uh, any more money to you. So they ceded it to France. And a few years later, France sold it to Thomas Jefferson in the Louisiana Purchase, all because that shipwreck went down. Right. So it's like so even there in 1784, you could see that they just started to realize that, wait a minute, at this point, the United States, you know, separating from England. But you've got them, you've got England, uh, you've got France on another side. We're we're too busy to keep this. We're not necessarily going to be able to bring all these uh, this money up. And then you started to look at. After the uh, War of American Independence, you know, uh, then you started to get the ideas uh, locally in Central and South America that maybe they didn't necessarily want to be part of Spain anymore. Take Mexico, for example. Mexico City was one of the largest of the um, Spanish mints where they would take the uh, silver and everything else that they got and they would mint them into coins in Mexico City for it. But, you know, as we know, it, it was didn't take long the early 1800s when uh you know mexico found their own you know independence they were like you know forget this so spain started to lose their holdings and i imagine they lost money to be able to control it so everybody's uh 
New World expansion kind of took a halt. Is there still pirate treasure around? I'm, I only ask because I've read this story about how the Treasure Coast in Florida is called the Treasure Coast because a Spanish fleet went down there in 1715. Yes. Yeah, there was uh, two major fleets that went down 1715 and 1733. 1733 fleet that went down is a little bit south of that. So you're talking, you know, south of Miami around the Keys, um, that area, maybe even as far north as West Palm Beach, Jupiter, that area. Um, but the 1715 fleet was coincidentally also the beginning of the Pirate Republic. So again, the end of the Queen Anne's, of Queen Anne's War. Now you've got privateers with no other, no other job. They want to become pirates. Well, in 1715, when uh, 11, some people say 12 uh, Spanish ships went down in a hurricane, primarily around San Sebastian or Fort Pierce uh, down here, what's now known as the Treasure Coast, all of them wrecked, except for one, uh, the Urca de Lima, um, which was primarily a storage ship as well. But it made it to shore. Granted, it made it shore and you know broken up and everything else. Uh, the Spanish sent uh, gathered up what they could from that wreck, at least, and then uh, brought it ashore. Well, a pirate by the name of Williams William Jennings gathered three hundred of his closest friends. And uh, they went and they raided the 60 soldiers that were guarding that gold. Uh-huh. And they took all of it. Oh. And they used that to fund the Pirate Republic in Nassau in the Bahamas. Wow. Uh, and so you you could see, you know, from that hurricanes wrecking all those ships, you know, that's what started the Pirate Republic there. Um, but, yes, you can still find actually gold and silver after a hurricane or a big nor'easter that blows through. People are known to find silver coins in a gold every couple of years uh, over there around San Sebastian. Yeah. yeah. Matthew Frick, curator at the St. Augustine Pirate and Treasure Museum. Thank you so much for the information today. Anyone in the St. Augustine area, yeah, yeah, be sure to stop on in and look at the remarkable collection there uh, right in the the mix of the touristy area in St. Augustine. Outstanding. Thank you for the invitation. I was just down on the Treasure Coast, Craig. I was telling you I was in uh, Vero for the better part of oh, a yeah. week. And there's a Mel Fisher, the, you know, the famous treasure hunter who found the Atocha mm-hmm. treasure down in Key West and, you know, spent his entire life looking for treasure. And there are still stories down there at the, the Mel Fisher Treasure Museum in Sebastian. They rent uh, the, the metal detectors and really? they actually have a program where you can go diving with uh, the treasure hunters uh, associated with the Mel Fisher Museum that continue to go out and look for, for treasure to this day. Wow. The only problem and- is whatever you find is theirs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. So don't expect to, yeah. to yeah. pull any. You do all the work. Or- we get to keep the trip. We get to keep <laughs> yeah. the cash. <laughs> Gold bars up off the bottom. But what an incredible experience. I think that both the Vero and the Key West locations for the, the Mel Fisher Museums, they actually offer excursions for people who want to go out and, <laughs> and treasure hunt for a day. But that uh, whole area there of the, the Treasure Coast, yeah, still it's still in the air there. And every once in a while, you'll see a story in the newspaper where someone finds a, a, a coin or something like uh, like Matthew said, after a, a storm and the, the right. bottom gets all churned up. It's extraordinary. 
extraordinary. Amazing. Amazing. Well, welcome to Florida. Yeah. Want to thank our newest sponsor again, the, the James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art there in St. Petersburg and the new exhibition, Away from Home, American Indian Boarding School Stories from January 28th through March 16th. And Craig, one of the great parts about your Oh Florida book is that you say, any story in American history has a Florida connection. Absolutely. Well, the way the Indian boarding school era connects to Florida is actually very directly. Following the Red River War out in Oklahoma and Texas in the mid-1870s, the Cheyenne and Arapaho Native American prisoners of war were shipped to Fort Marion, which is in the shadow of the St. Augustine Lighthouse, that uh, black and white spiral lighthouse there on Anastasia Island, which Matthew mentioned during our conversation. And the guy in charge of Fort Marion, a former, former Civil War soldier, actually came to get along with the Cheyenne and Arapaho prisoners of war, kind of liked them, you know, let them free from their shackles and, and had this idea uh, fueled entirely by white supremacy that, you know, these guys aren't so bad if we could just take the Indian out of them. And the idea for the Indian boarding schools was his hatched at Fort Marion in St. Augustine. And the overriding theory goal of the Indian boarding schools was kill the Indian, save the man. An attempt at cultural genocide, thinking that if we could make Native Americans more like white people, understand uh, our language, cultural practices, traditions, religion, private property values, work ethic, uh, familial structure, things of that nature. Well, then we could save these people. But as long as they were living like, quote unquote, Indians, they were doomed to be a vanishing race. A direct connection to Florida, the horrifically misguided philosophy behind the American Indian boarding school era, an era which is on view for deep contemplation through personal stories, photographs, artifacts, on now through March 16th, special exhibition at the James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art there in St. Petersburg, open daily 10 to 5, Tuesdays until 8 o'clock. Learn more at thejamesmuseum.org. Before we go, Craig, have you been to Gasparilla Festival? You know, I have not. I have not. I, I, um, it just does not seem like the kind of thing that I would enjoy. Um, but a lot of people do. And in fact, um, uh, one of my former colleagues at the Times just did a big story about a place that sells all of your pirate costume needs for Gasparilla. People spend hundreds of dollars yeah. on, on costume items to look authentically Authentic. without without you know actually being historical so <laughs> but that's that's florida you know we we spend a lot of money on the stuff that isn't really history but we can we pretend so <laughs> welcome to florida welcome to florida